We believe the work you do on the front lines with kids and teenagers is the most important work in the world. Every meeting with a small group leader, email to parents, and late night supply run matters because you're helping kids and teenagers develop an everyday faith. On average, you have about 40 hours this year to influence the faith of kids and teenagers who come to your programming. That means you need to be intentional about your messaging strategy. Orange Curriculum is a comprehensive strategy for birth to high school. Each age group curriculum not only provides you with strategic messages to engage kids and students with biblical truths, but also resources to help you train volunteers and partner with parents. So start using Orange Curriculum to spend less time planning your message and more time doing what only you can do, building relationships. You can get started today at tryorangefree.com. That's tryorangefree.com. Here's what we know is true. You're listening to this podcast because you believe in what you do as a ministry leader. You know that every early morning, late night, and meeting that could have been an email is so worth it. And when you believe in what you do this much, you do everything you can to make it better. You know that the mission is too important not to try something new. And that's why we created the Redesign Your Ministry to Last course from Orange Masterclass. Join Reggie Joyner as he unpacks the five essential values for your ministry that will last far beyond a person, a model, or yes, even a pandemic, and innovative strategies to help you elevate them in your ministry. Start working on your ministry, not just in your ministry, today by going to orangemasterclass.com. Welcome to the Think Orange podcast, where we want to encourage and equip leaders like you who are investing in the faith and future of the next generation. I'm your host, Shane Sanchez, and in this episode of the podcast, we're going to be learning about the tensions that we need to lean into in order to help the next generation develop a resilient faith. And we're so excited for you to get to hear this breakout from Dan Scott. Dan is the director of 252 Elementary Strategies at Orange and has been working with kids for over 20 years as a teacher, pastor, and communicator. He enjoys consulting with children's and family ministry teams in the U.S. and abroad to help them create engaging ministry environments to reach the next generation. And his book, Caught in Between, Engage Your Preteens Before They Check Out, focuses on how to help church leaders understand the world of preteens and create an environment to meet their unique needs. We can't wait for you to get to learn from him, so let's dive in. The idea is pretty simple. Life will knock you down. Resilience means you bounce back up and keep going. When life knocks you down, it tests your faith. You might even feel like your faith is gone. So does that mean having a resilient faith means you bounce back to the faith you once had? Well, maybe, but I wonder, what if it's more like bouncing up, like on a trampoline, allowing you to see God in ways you've never seen, not to stop believing, but to believe more? Or maybe it's a bounce forward to a deeper faith, redefined by your questions and doubts. And regardless of how you experience it, your faith will change. In other words, resilient faith isn't a bouncing back to the faith of your childhood. Rather, it's believing that the journey down or away isn't the whole journey. It's a drive, a willingness to trust God through life's difficulties and an ongoing pursuit with the hope that although your faith might change, there's more to come and you'll be stronger on the other side of the struggle. It's a faith that propels us forward and keeps us growing throughout our life. As we grow up, what we experience forces us to rethink what we've been taught about anything. This is developmentally normal. It isn't a crisis, 
It's literally part of the journey towards adulthood. As kids, we needed to understand abstract faith in concrete terms. But as our ability to think abstractly emerges, we push at those concrete ways of looking at the world. We question, we evaluate what we find. We let go of what no longer works, rearrange what needs tweaking, and hold on to what continues to make sense and move us forward. However, this normal activity we all do is often dismissed when it comes to our faith. But this renovation process is something anyone goes through when they want to take ownership of what they believe and decide how they'll live as a result. We can't, nor shouldn't, prevent kids from doing it. But we can help them prepare for it. So here's the question. How do we ensure kids have something to hold on to when, not if, these questions and doubts show up? Well, we believe it starts with keeping a few things in tension with each other. I read something recently that caught my attention regarding faith formation and discipleship in the next generation. Theologian Walter Brueggemann gives two rules for teaching theology to kids. He said it's similar to teaching kids about sex. Don't teach them something they'll need to unlearn. And two, don't teach them more than they need to know in that moment. Both of these statements are quite true, aren't they? For theology, well, and for sex. In fact, these are true for how we teach kids about anything. How and what we teach kids should always focus on creating a foundation for future learning and lived experience. But as true as these statements are, I also started thinking they weren't quite complete. They didn't quite reflect what we at Orange have learned about kids since he first captured these ideas. There was another side of the issue. First, yes, don't teach kids something they will need to unlearn. That's one side. But the other side is that all humans at some point throughout their lives will unlearn something they've been taught. Secondly, while it's true that kids don't need to know everything now, one side of the issue, the other side is that we should also keep in mind what they will eventually need to know. And in doing so, we tell a version of the information that is both true now and also true to the eventual understanding of that information. The tensions I felt led to other ideas, other tensions we at Orange hold as we lay a foundation for a person's growing faith in Jesus. In fact, I have 12 steps of them. We can't cover them all in this breakout, but we'll go deep with a few and provide a way for you to get the rest of them at some point. Uh, But before we dive in, just one more thing to keep in mind. We're always working to find the balance between each side of the tension. In fact, that's the point. It's a balancing act. We should constantly be feeling a pull both ways. And if we aren't, we can be sure that means we have moved too far in one direction. And so we play and experiment. We take risks. We lean one direction and realize we pull too far. So we evaluate and recalculate. We're not always going to get it right. But the faith of the next generation is worth trying new things to make sure we don't miss something important. And our hope is that these tensions create a starting point for conversations about faith formation in your own church context. All right, let's dive in. First up, theology and human development. We care about what kids learn about God. Our goal is that we hope kids enter into a growing, authentic relationship with God that they own their own faith as they move into adulthood. We begin our scope and cycle process of our curriculum, considering what we believe about God and what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and live through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our theology informs the pathway we offer kids to engage with their faith. Our theology informs how we talk about the Bible, 
and how what we read in the Bible continues to speak today. What we help kids learn about God, Jesus, and the Bible is very important. But we must hold that intention with what we know from developmental psychology, namely that people process certain types of information better at certain stages of their development. We shouldn't fight against this. Rather, we should lean into this. Knowing when it's best for kids and students to learn certain stories and ideas from the Bible is also important. Because let's be honest, some of those heroes of the Bible had moments in their life that make adults blush. And they're not appropriate for kids, but those same stories might be perfect for what a teenager in your church is dealing with. Beyond the stories we teach, we have to consider the vocabulary we use at each phase to help kids understand abstract theological concepts. For example, we might not use a word like sanctification with a seven-year-old, but we will say, God is doing something in you to change the world around you and lay a foundation for a time in the future when they're more able to handle the nuance of a concept like sanctification. With that in mind, we choose stories and concepts that will be foundational to a child's growing theology at each phase of their life and teach them in ways they can understand and remember. The tension between theology and human development gets played out in this next tension, context and contextualization. When we start with theology and the stories and ideas we want to teach from the Bible, we first have to consider the original context. See, the writers of the Bible, well, they didn't write in a vacuum. Everything we read in scripture is embedded in a time and place in history, written for a specific purpose to a specific audience experiencing a specific set of circumstances. However, we often approach teaching scriptures like we can lift verses out of their historical context and simply drop them into our own without any sort of translation, but we can't. We shouldn't. The chasm of history is too wide. In fact, as postmodern people living in the 21st century, we actually operate from a completely different thought framework than people who live through the times recorded for us in the Bible. And on top of that, there's only really so much we can know about the original context from when these stories were first spoken and eventually captured in writing. But we do know these authors were inspired by God. They wrote down their experiences not only to document what happened as they saw it, but also to understand what was happening as they were experiencing it. Context is more than just where and when an event happened, but also how and why it was written or edited and compiled in the Bible we have today. So we use commentaries and theological editors to ensure that we're as close to that historically accurate time with how we're presenting the stories and ideas. But original context, well, that's only one side of the story. After all, we live in the tension between what it meant back then and what it means now, not to mention what it means to a specific person, including me and you. So once we have a grasp of the author's original context, we attempt to contextualize their context into our own in a way that connects to our audience. Of course, the goal of any Bible story is to help a kid connect it to their own story. And contextualization is the first step to make sure that happens. When you contextualize, you're doing the work of translation, not from one language to another necessarily, but from an ancient culture to the culture of our audience, which in this case is a child or teenager in your church who thinks and learns and grows a certain way at a certain phase of their life. 
this kid or teenager also lives in the 21st century in a specific part of the world with unique experiences and family and friends, all in a context very different from the original one. By contextualizing, you're able to craft applications that help make the Bible connect and make sense in their world. If you don't start with contextualizing the Bible story, the applications you offer, well, they'll be shallow at best and irrelevant at worst. Contextualizing can be difficult, but it is a necessary step in the process. We don't want kids to leave without understanding how the ancient text of scripture connects to their everyday experience. Theology, the biblical context, human development, and our current context are all held in tension in order to help a kid develop growing faith of their own. Now, here's another set. Decisions and process. How we invite kids to faith is important. Somewhere along the way, we as a church decided Christian faith formation should accomplish one thing, getting a child to make a choice to believe in Jesus and get saved. We've measured success by how many kids come up to the front or make a decision to trust Jesus at an altar call. We focus all of our attention to make sure everything we create, everything we say has a decision-making moment. Now, don't hear me saying that helping a kid understand what it means to put their faith in Jesus isn't important. It is. And your ministry should provide on-ramps for kids to consider that decision. But the life of faith is more than that one decision. It's never one prayer and it's over. The decision to follow Jesus is a goal, but it's not the only goal of faith formation. That's why we hold decisions in tension with a process God invites us into a process of faith here and now in this life is a dynamic unfolding understanding of Christ that grows and matures over time as one experiences the work of God through the Holy Spirit in their life. Of course, the decision might be a milestone on that journey of faith, but it's not the journey in and of itself. It is a tension between belief and becoming, belief that Jesus is who he says he is and to becoming more like Jesus throughout your life. We want kids to know the gospel, but we also want them to understand how the gospel transforms the way they love God, themselves, and the rest of the world. This is why we offer moments for kids to talk through their faith decisions, but hold that intention with how we help kids navigate the process of faith how they show the fruit of the spirit and how they apply scripture through virtues that originate in the character of God. And as leaders, we need to honor each person's journey and not rush the process for anyone, including one's decision to follow Jesus. We need to remember that we're not the Holy Spirit working in a kid's life. We need to let the actual Holy Spirit do the work in whatever time frame the spirit is working. This tension is especially seen when you realize that your audience includes a major tension to keep in mind, insiders and outsiders. Okay, look, I, I don't love putting labels on people. Labels make it easy to dismiss actual humans and their lived experience. But in this case, the labels do allow us to consider that our audience is more diverse than we often realize. We have people in our audience who've lived their entire lives part of a church family. They have context for all the Bible stories. They have a vocabulary filled with all the terms and idioms that fill countless books about the Christian life. They may even volunteer and lead in your church ministries. It's great having these people around. They make your church possible. 
But when we consider the content we share on Sundays, we must also understand that we have people in our audience who may have never stepped foot in a church before. They don't know the stories or the liturgy. They, they don't give or serve. They may even have been hurt by the church in the past. They may have lots of baggage when it comes to what they think about God and their faith, but it's also great having these people around. They keep your church relevant. What you communicate and how you communicate should hold these two sides of your audience in tension, knowing that more than likely, all people fall somewhere on the continuum between each. This is especially true in your next-gen ministry environments. You will have kids who've grown up in the church. They're regular attendees. They know all the stories and can answer all the questions. But you will also have kids who are showing up for the first time and everything they experience feels like they're in a foreign country. And honestly, even some of the kids who've been around your church for a while, they may feel like that from time to time as well. That's because new knowledge connects to prior knowledge. And prior knowledge will vary with every kid throughout every ministry setting. Every time you hear new information, in this case, a story or idea from the Bible, your brain attaches it to your prior knowledge in light of your current experiences. This truth drives us to create a scope and cycle instead of a scope and sequence. We have a sequence for what we'll share and in what order, but we also keep in mind when and how we will cycle back to key ideas that get developed over time. The truth is, we can't ever know or even predict at what point a kid or student will enter our ministry environment. We're as intentional about the concepts we share as we are intentional about the concepts we repeat. We're always creating experiences that try to engage church kids while making faith accessible to new kids and even remind those church kids what they've already learned. Keeping insiders and outsiders in tension allows us to find empathy for remembering how long it took us to know what we know. We're not raising kids. We're not raising teenagers. We're raising adults. Yet often we feel an urgency to say everything in one message, thinking this is our only chance to help an outsider make a decision to become an insider. But it's important to remember that next-gen ministry is a long game. And every time a kid shows up in your church, the goal should be to create an engaging environment where they feel welcomed and want to come back. See, if you only ever talk about the decision, you may reach outsiders, but you'll lose your insiders. And if you only ever talk about process, sure, you're more likely to engage everyone, but you might miss a crucial moment where a kid is ready to make a decision and put their trust in Jesus. Decisions, process, insiders, outsiders, we hold them in tension. It's a balance that we'll continue to wrestle with as we hope to engage our communities with the life-changing message of Jesus. All right, so in light of these first ideas, here's another set of tensions. Timeless and temporary. We hold what is timeless in tension with what is temporary. Some ideas are timeless. We should seek to include them as long as they continue to add value. This is especially true of what we hope kids and students understand from scripture. We have a three-year scope and cycle filled with timeless truths from the Bible that we believe can offer them a solid foundation in their growing faith in Jesus. Timeless truths, though, are also held in tension with the temporary methods for how we teach them. I've been serving in children's ministry since I was in high school, like, lots of years ago. Uh, Some of what we do in 2022 is similar, but most of it 
is nothing like we were doing back in the 90s. Some methods and ideas just no longer work the way they were intended. The world has changed, including how we use technology, connect with parents, and even how kids learn. At some point, we need to allow some strategies to fade away in order to make room for new methods and ideas that move the message of Jesus forward. Now, I love change and trying out innovative ideas, but we can't make a change simply for the sake of change. On the contrary, any sort of major change in how we connect with kids and families calls for wisdom and discernment. Make changes based on updated information and shifting cultural dynamics. Any change we make should be one that moves us forward in our understanding and practice of faith. Use what you've learned along the way to imagine new ways of sharing the truth with the emerging generation. The tension between timeless and temporary is applied in how we handle the next tension, faith and reason. Faith, of course, is faith. What the author of Hebrews talks about, uh, it's a confidence in what we hope for and an assurance about what we do not see. Specifically, our faith is a deep trust that God is the author of life and is intimately involved in our lives. We trust God no matter what, especially when it comes to Jesus. We believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he lived and died and rose again to bring us back to God. Faith informs our foundation. It's our starting point for how we consider the truth that exists beyond what we can experience with our senses. But we hold our faith in what we don't fully know or understand in tension with what we do know and what we can reason and discover with the minds God gave us. Reason informs how we ask questions and conduct research to explore the world around us. God created these intricate minds that make scientific and historical discoveries that not only impact our everyday lives, but actually help us better understand God and each other. That's because faith and reason, well, they ask the same sort of questions of the world, but just from slightly different nuanced perspectives. What, why, how, when? Sure, some of these questions can be answered with reason and others with a perspective of faith. Most often though, when we're dealing with the ancient words of scripture, it's a little bit of both. When God inspired the writers of the Bible to capture their experience and understanding of God, the goal was never scientific discovery. The scientific method had yet to be discovered. Neither had microscopes, telescopes, or particle accelerators. Science was the farthest thing in their minds. Rather, the writers of the Bible captured something bigger something beyond science. They captured the God of the universe who is both beyond what we experience with our senses, it is also close enough to understand our deepest needs. In light of that, the writers of scripture are also trying to capture the essence of what's true about the human experience, the good and the bad. However, to best understand how and when and what and even why the authors of scripture wrote what they wrote, we need the results from what our minds allow us to reason and discover. To gather context and find relevance in these ancient stories, we read the text and piece the stories and ideas together, not only from the Bible itself, but from archeology span and science, history and tradition, even our personal experience as we interact with other followers of Jesus. Not to mention that this tension between faith and reason also allows us to discover the best ways to help kids grow in their relationship with Jesus. As we see in this next set of tensions, cognitive learning and emotional intelligence. 
Earlier, we touched on human development, which definitely includes how people grow and mature in their ability to learn. But this tension specifically relates to how kids think and how they feel. Cognitive learning and emotional intelligence are dynamic. Kids don't necessarily mature in these areas in a direct, straight line. For sure, they experience forward movement, but depending on their circumstances, they may take steps backwards in these areas. Cognitive learning focuses on the ability to think about the way you think, including how you feel about what you're learning and whether or not you want to learn it. How kids believe how they can think will change how they approach their learning and determine what they decide to learn and achieve as they grow. It's one thing to teach kids a Bible story, teach them the details and prescribe how that story should connect with their life. That's fine. And they'll probably learn something. However, it's another thing for them to be offered the chance to think about the story for themselves and discover how it's relevant and applies specifically to their own life. Because that second option engages cognitive learning. And the kids are more likely to find value in the story, remember it, and put the applications into practice. But thinking is only one side of this tension. We also care about a kid's emotional intelligence. I'm pretty sure you've heard this idea before, but just in case, emotional intelligence, or EQ, is the ability to understand, use, and manage your own emotions in a positive way. EQ is the foundation for empathy, stress relief, effective communication, even overcoming challenges with resilience. EQ focuses on how we feel about our circumstances, our relationships, even our work, and what we're learning about. And so, we seek to understand how we can enter into the emotional life of kids throughout their development, infusing them with tools to help them find courage, discover joy, and live with hope. We care about this because God cares about this. All throughout the Psalms, we see David wrestle with his emotions. We read about God coming to his rescue. We read about Jesus and how he dealt with adversity, fear, even grief. We see Jesus calm the storm and offer hope to many who thought life had passed them by. So yes, we care about how kids think and learn information, but we also care deeply about how kids feel about what they're learning and experiencing throughout their lives. This tension between cognitive learning and emotional intelligence is applied in this final set of tensions for today. Large group presentation and small group experience. So as we get into this last set of tensions, uh, just a bit of a confession, I'm a large group guy. I have been a storyteller, host, worship leader, and as a kids pastor, I love creating dynamic large group environments for kids to experience an amazing Bible story. I say that because my own tendency is to lean in that direction, but I've learned along the way that large group is only as good as its ability to set up small group leaders and kids to have a great experience wrestling with the story and applying it to their lives. See, large group presentations connect more to the cognitive side of a kid's learning. Sure, we want them to pay attention and engage, but the goal is really to offer universal teaching so everyone in the room starts their learning on the same page. We want it to be fun. We want it to connect. We want kids to remember it. So we put a lot of effort into what we create to help leaders around the world create awesome large group presentations. But we know that kids have a greater chance at faith formation when it happens in the context of a relationship with trusted adults and like-minded peers. 
Small group allows for a leader with a personal relationship with their group to provide nuance for the specific kids in their group. In a perfect world, these two experiences are connected in a trajectory that moves from general ideas to specific applications. See, the brain can't jump right into deep learning, especially at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. So start with small group games and conversations that get kids warmed up and ready to learn. As you get further into your time together, you head to large group and start introducing more specific ideas like tension points that get answered through the Bible story, which leads to broad application that connect generally to everyone in the room. Then even further into the hour, you transition the kids to small group for specific applications where kids get the chance to discover how the Bible story connects directly to them. Large group and small group kept in tension, work together to help a kid understand how they can discover a faith of their own and see how Jesus connects to their everyday life. Well, okay, that was a lot. But these are the sorts of things we keep in mind when creating Orange Curriculum. These tensions allow us to connect with more kids in more places around the world. After all, humans are complex. If you have more than one kid in your home or ministry, you're fully aware what works with one will often not come close to working with the other. They think differently, they learn differently, they behave differently, and it's only normal then that they process their faith differently. We have a big goal. We want all kids to have a better future. We want them to connect to the life-changing message of Jesus and help them embark on a lifetime of faith formation. How we do that? will ebb and flow as we try to reach each generation. And keeping these ideas in tension should help. So as you think through this and adapt your curriculum and your message to fit the unique needs of your church, keep these tensions in mind. Help your kids discover an authentic faith, resilient enough to trust God no matter what life throws their way. Thanks so much, Dan. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast and want to learn more about our curriculum, go to thinkorange.com. We would also love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love this review by Charlie. They said, I've served for over 10 years in youth ministry, and I wish this resource was available to me when I started. Every week brings content that is challenging and helps me grow as a ministry leader. Thanks so much for the review, Charlie. And if you want to join thousands of churches who have partnered with the Orange Strategy to help kids develop a resilient faith, you can try Orange Curriculum for free today at free.thinkorange.com. All right, we'll see you next time on the Think Orange Podcast.